Some other things that you can do as an investor is you want to make sure that their legal documents are in place. A simple, easy way to do this is you can look online. The SEC has a program called EDGAR, E-D-G-A-R. You can look up deals on there. Are you ready to change your life? Welcome to the Multifamily Investor Ladies Podcast, sponsored by Freedom Capital Investments. Your host, Linda Brooks, is a dynamic multifamily investor syndicator with a portfolio valued at over $20 million and growing. Join her on her journey as she shows you it's never too late to get started in multifamily real estate investing. And she'll show you how to do it successfully as a passive investor. And now, here is your host, Linda Brooks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Multifamily Investor Ladies podcast. I'm Linda Brooks, your host, and I'm so glad you've tuned in today. I also want to thank and commend you for making the all-important decision to learn more about how to become an educated passive investor in the commercial real estate market. Today, we have with us Mr. Nick McGrew. He's a high-speed real estate and securities attorney who assists clients in navigating complex securities regulations as they raise capital for their projects. He's also a tenured professor of law teaching law and real estate classes to both graduate and undergraduate students alike. Nick is also licensed to practice law in California and Washington State, where he's from, and holds a California real estate broker's license. Our guest today is that high-speed real estate and securities attorney, Nick McGrew, out of L.A., sunny California. Thanks for joining me today, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Very, very happy to be here. It is indeed my pleasure. And so I sought far and wide looking for someone to talk to our listeners about being an accredited investor, just being able to see the different types of investment opportunities that come out. I noticed that many of them would say 506C or accredited investors only, and then there was some change in the regulations. So I thought it'd be great to have an expert come on and share what that means for the passive investor. So We'll start with the question, what is an accredited investor? Yes. So as you mentioned, there have been some new regulations and the definition is expanding. But for most people, if they're trying to qualify for as an accredited investor, most people will qualify either through income or through net worth. And so if they're qualifying through income, if we're talking about an individual, an accredited individual is one who has made $200,000 or more for the past two years and anticipates making that much or more this year. And then by net worth, it's an individual with a net worth of $1 million or more exclusive of their primary residence. So take away the home that you live in. If outside of that, your investments and assets add up to $1 million or more, then you'd be an accredited investor. Regarding the income qualification, if we're talking about a couple or a spousal equivalent, which is one of the new regulations or new definitions from the regulations, then it increases to $300,000. So as spouses or spousal equivalents, you'll have to have combined made $300,000 for the past two years and anticipate to make $300,000 or more this year. So those are the two ways that most people typically qualify. But there are other ways such as certain funds. Typically, you're going to have to have higher thresholds. A lot of them have a a $5 million threshold. One of the new definitions added in indigenous tribes, those governments, they often can now qualify as accredited family offices. There were some new additions with family 
family offices qualifying as accredited as well. And one change that might help a small amount of people is a knowledgeable employee of a private fund. And so what that means is that if you're working for a fund, then there's a chance that you might be able to qualify as accredited to invest in that fund. But like I said, when we're talking for the most people and what I would guess most of your audience, typically it's going to be through that income or through their net worth is how they would qualify. Got it. Wow. That's a lot of information. (laughs) Now, word on the street is that million, that primary residence exclusion, that California was kind of like the, I guess, inspiration for that exclusion because homes in California are are always valued over a million dollars. And as a result, more people than probably wouldn't qualify would have qualified as, as a result. Anecdotally, I would agree with that. I don't know if (laughs) California specifically was, but that's one thing that I often say when I'm explaining this. I say, you know, look, if you're in California, in some parts, that fixer up starter home is going to be at a million or close to it. And like you said, that would make almost anybody in in a big city either accredited or very close to being accredited. And so, yeah, we exclude that and we say outside of that expensive dwelling that you have to have to live in, or do you have the net worth outside of that? Awesome sauce. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) So how does being an accredited investor impacts one's ability to invest? It opens up quite a bit more opportunities. So I'll start off in that we always look at the SEC and we're kind of scared or like, oh my goodness, what are they doing? But their goal is here is to protect consumers. They're trying to stop people from investing in really bad deals and harming themselves financially. And so if we think about kind of the, some of the definitions of accredited investor that I've gone over already, these are people that typically would be able to weather a bad investment a little bit better than other people. Mm-hmm. So if you're making $200,000 or have a million dollar net worth, if you lose it on a $50,000 investment, you're not going to be happy, but it's probably not going to rock your financial world. So the reason that we have that accredited definition is in the SEC's attempts to protect consumers and investors. So if you are accredited, because we think now that, okay, if the investment doesn't go so well, you can weather the storm, you've got a lot more opportunities. And so when we're talking about accredited investors, this typically comes from Regulation D, which is where a lot of real estate securities exemptions fall under. But it also actually helps you with Regulation A, which is a common one, as well as regulation crowdfunding as well. We'll talk for about Regulation D first. With Regulation D, if you're accredited, you can invest in essentially all Regulation D offerings. There are some offerings where we allow sophisticated investors. These are people that are not accredited, but through their investment experience, their work experience, their education, or through the assistance of a financial planner, they have the wherewithal to determine, does this deal make sense for their financial situation? Mm -hmm. So 506B allows some non-accredited investors. But with 506B, you cannot do general advertising. And so that issuer, the person raising money, simply going to people that they know to raise this capital. And so not always, but typically these are going to be somewhat smaller investments just because you're limited to the people that you know that can invest. But if you're accredited, you can invest in a 506B raise. If you're accredited, you can also invest in a 506C raise. And 506C allows for general solicitation. So it's advertising. And I see them even on Facebook and other uh, Google ads, all that sort of stuff. And so with those, if you're accredited, you could invest in those opportunities as well. And so I know from even some of my personal experience, 
experience. I have clients that are working on venture capital funds, which you know, venture capital is very risky, but if you hit just one home run, it can be a huge, huge home run. Mm-hmm. And typically those are going to be 506C raises, if not even some other definition. And so for all of those ones that I've dealt with, again, it's anecdotal, but I think it probably tracks pretty well across the market as a whole. Those are typically going to be a 506C raise, which means you must be accredited in order to invest in that. And like I said earlier, those 506C raises, because the issuer can say to the world, essentially, hey, I'm raising funds. Now they can only take accredited investors, but they're advertising to the world. A lot of times these are going to be bigger projects. And so the returns could be better or because it's so much larger, the risk could be a little bit less. And so you're going to have just a lot more open to you. Even with Regulation A and crowdfund, those you don't necessarily have to be accredited to invest in them. But a lot of times there are investment limits based upon your income. If you're accredited, those limits are going to be significantly higher or non-existent altogether. I see. Okay. So I've heard of people raising funds and syndicating for smaller deals, like 20 units, 10 units. Do these different regulations apply to those smaller deals or is there a different regulation also for those? It could. There are lots. This is the thing about securities. It's very complex and there's a lot of ways to do it wrong, but there also are many ways to do it correctly. So with smaller deals, it really could depend. You could do an interest rate offering. And so there you're kind of somewhat outside of the SEC's purview and you're following your individual state's securities laws, but typically you're limited to only having investors within your state. And so if that was the case, we'd have to look at what your individual state's rules are. And some states do have income requirements. Other states don't have an income requirement, but instead they just have much more stringent compliance requirements on the issuer side. Yeah, sounds complex, but outstanding information. So what other legal matters when we're talking about investing in securities? Because ultimately, these capital raising activities and these are offerings, these are considered securities, albeit private placement, right? So what other legal matters should the passive investor be aware of? One thing you're going to know if the issuer themselves have any pending legal matters or actual litigation, because one, they're required to disclose that. And two, you're going to want to know just because that's something that's either going to be taking away their time and attention from working on your deal. Man, it could be something that potentially affects your deal, depending on what the issue is dealing with and, and how it's structured. So kind of more with that, you really want to know your issuers, really get to understand them. And that's part of their job too. And don't feel, I'll hesitate when I say this, but I'll say, don't feel like you're pestering them if you're calling them nonstop. Obviously, you want to be a bit measured because an issuer is going to say, okay, they're calling me every day. Their money's just not quite worth it. Calling them to make sure you're informed and getting the questions that you have answered, that's very important. And don't be afraid to do that. And if the issuer is kind of saying, hey, you're calling too much, then take that to heart. Because if there's a problem and they have your money, they're not answering you now that I wouldn't assume that they're going to answer you when there's a problem. So that's something that you'd want to kind of use as part of your vetting is how responsive are they? Some other things that you can do as an investor is you want to make sure that their legal documents are in place. And so a simple, easy way to do this is to, on, or it's, I guess it's simple for me, it's, it's not that complex. You can look online. The SEC has a program called EDGAR, E-D-G-A-R. 
And you can look up deals on there. You're not necessarily going to see all the ins and outs, but you'll at least be able to see who the issuers are, the exemptions they're using, and that sort of stuff. And so look them up on Edgar. And if you don't see them on Edgar, say, hey, have you filed your Form D yet? Or are you planning to? And if they look at you like a deer in the headlights, I'd say that's a warning sign that you might want to look at them a bit closer because that's something that they're required to do. And if they're not aware of that and don't know about that, then my question would be, okay, if they don't know about that, what other things might have they missed out on? Good point. Yes, I'm familiar with Edgar, but wasn't aware that these real estate syndications were registered on Edgar as well. That's good information. Thank you. Quick question on the accreditation. So you talked about what's required to be considered an accredited investor, how it impacts one's ability to invest. As a CPA, I understand what an accredited investor has to provide to the capital raiser to prove or to certify that they are an accredited investor. But for the listeners, if you could talk a little bit about that, what documentation is required, who should they get it from, how often does it need to be updated? If you could speak to that, that would be great. Yeah. And this actually is part of the answer. This actually falls into the last answer as well about making sure that they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's. Mm -hmm. So if it's a 506B raise, you don't have to be accredited. And so the SEC is a lot more lax. Either way, you have to take reasonable steps to verify their investor status. With a 506B, in some instances, you can take a questionnaire coupled with your relationship with them, and that could satisfy reasonable steps. The SEC has made it very clear that for a 506C raise, where all investors must be accredited, having the investors fill out a questionnaire alone is not reasonable steps. So if you're doing a 506C raise and they say, yeah, we just have to have you sign up, fill out this questionnaire and check the boxes that you're accredited, that's not taking enough steps to verify your status. And so again, that'd be one of those things where I say, okay, what else might be missing out on? So in order to take reasonable steps, questionnaire can help. I tell my clients that are issuers, I say, look, you want to have a third party verify them, have their CPA, have their financial planner, maybe their attorney, if the attorney is involved with their finances, but have them write a letter saying, I have reviewed their finances. I have taken reasonable steps to verify that they indeed are accredited based upon an income of X dollars or based upon a net worth of X dollars. There are also companies that this is their sole job, a third-party verification companies. Mm -hmm. Typically, they'll charge anywhere from about $75 to $150. The investor will have to send items like tax returns and you know, brokerage statements and that sort of thing. And through that, that third-party verification company will determine whether they're verified or not. But yes, for 506C, if they're just sending you a questionnaire and having you check off a few things, that alone is not enough to verify your accredited status. Now, how often does that accreditation letter from a third party have to be updated? Like, when does it expire? So a very cool new, I wouldn't say breakthrough, but new uh, change in the regulations is that the SEC has now said one issuer only has to verify them once in a 12-month period. So if I verify you in June 2021, I won't have to verify you again for my deals until June 2022. Typically, it's a 90-day expiration period if it's a, to a new one. So say that you get verified from a third party in June and you invest in with a few people. Once October comes, if you have a new person that you're investing with, you'd want to get an updated letter. Outstanding. Okay, good deal. So what advice do you have for the aspiring and novice passive investor? I would say 
educate yourself and not necessarily even a formal sense. I'd say kind of test the waters and vet deals, sit in on those webinars, talk to founders or issuers, and kind of talk with a lot of them to get an idea of the different styles, the different structures, the different return schemes, so that you can kind of start understanding what should a deal look like exactly, or what are some deal points that I like, and what are some deal points that I don't like, because each individual is going to have different investment criteria for their unique financial situation. And so if you're brand new, if you see one or two deals, They sound good and they could be good, but they also could be two of the kind of lower deals. So what I would suggest is don't necessarily jump right in right away. If you're thinking about it, start thinking about it a lot stronger and really start vetting and taking the steps as if you were going to invest. Even if you're saying, I'm not ready, I'll be ready in maybe six months, start looking at issuers right now. One, because that, like I said, that'll give you a better idea as the types of deals and the types of returns you should be looking for and things that you may or may not like. Two, it'll also help you start establishing that relationship with the issuer so that when you are ready to actually invest, you'll have a better idea of what their investment style is. Also, they'll know who you are and you'll feel more comfortable asking them the questions that you have. That's the big one I'd say. Do not be afraid to ask the issuer questions. The SEC requires that they provide you information. The SEC requires that they allow you to ask additional questions. And so until you are satisfied with the information that you want, don't invest. So don't be afraid to ask questions about the deal. Even if you think it's quote unquote stupid, hey, it's your money. Ask all the stupid questions you want if you, before you spend your money. Because I'd say the stupider <laughs> thing is to invest your money and have some outlying questions that were not answered. Excellent. Excellent advice. So for our operators, syndicators, and even passive investors that would like to get in touch with you, Nick, how do they do that? Easiest way is to reach us on our website. It's www.polymathlegal.com. That's P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H-L-E-G-A-L.com. And on there, you can, you'll have our phone number. You can message us right in there and you can also schedule a free 15-minute consultation right on the website as well. I have to ask, how did you come up with the name Polymath Legal? <laughs> so that question right there is part of the reason that I chose it because it's unique. People are always like, what is polymath? So it allows me to at least kind of have a conversation or it sticks out. But the term polymath, it's kind of like a renaissance person, someone who's skilled in many different areas. So in college, we had a group of us that we all had different areas we were working in and just friends. And we called ourselves the polymath group. But as I kind of learned more and more about what a polymath was, I'm someone who has lots of different interests and tries to dive into them as deep as I can. And so I consider myself a bit of a polymath. And so with that, coupled with that, the uniqueness of the name, I said, yeah, I think we've got ourselves a winner there. I like it. Nicely done. Nicely done. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad you had some time to uh, share your knowledge on securities and accredited investor and SEC regulations with our listeners and appreciate you taking time from sunny California to spend some time with us online. (laughs) Absolutely. My pleasure. And if you have some questions, don't hesitate to reach out again. Happy to help and share what I've got. I most certainly will. And I would be remiss if I didn't, as the podcast host, mention that if anyone is in need of a third party service to provide that accredited investor certification, feel free to contact me on our website at multifamilyinvestorladies.com as a CPA. That is a service that I provide. So thank you again, Nick. It was indeed our pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You as well. Thank you all for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating on your favorite listening platform. And if you like what you hear, find it helpful, and want to learn more, go ahead and hit subscribe. To learn more about investment opportunities and join the Multifamily Investor Ladies community, visit us on our website at multifamilyinvestorladies.com. And remember, it's never too late to get started in multifamily real estate investing with the Multifamily Investor Ladies. Thanks a mil for listening. For more information about today's episode, learn more about passive multifamily real estate investing or to reach Linda directly, visit us on the web at multifamilyinvestorladies.com. Thanks a mil for joining the Multifamily Investor Ladies podcast sponsored by Freedom Capital Investments. Your host, Linda Brooks, reminds you it's never too late to get started on your multifamily real estate investment journey, and she'll show you how to do it successfully as a passive investor. We'll see you next time.